If you're visiting with us, welcome this morning. We are continuing in our study of the book of Ephesians and we'll be in chapter 1. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we begin. Father, even as has just been sung over us, we recognize that in Christ, a light has shone in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Would you use our time gathered together to help us to see how bright the light of the glory of Christ actually is? To that end, would you lead us by your spirit now? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus once asked, what is the kingdom of God like? Or to what shall I compare it? Answering his own question, he went on to say, it is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. The reality is that sometimes the influence of God and the activity of his kingdom in this world is, is really difficult to see. The reality is that wars persist. Natural disasters wreak havoc across the globe our very own hearts betray us. And biblical morality has, has become somewhat of an endangered species, both in the culture and, and sadly at times within the church itself. But despite this, the Bible presents a perspective on this world that is absolutely staggering. Despite all the corruption and the crookedness, the Bible boldly proclaims that God is actively working to accomplish his will in and through and even in spite of events that often appear chaotic and, and rather confusing for us. Job saw this truth. like a lighthouse in the distance through a blinding storm. Despite his suffering, he once declared to God, I know, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And he said that after his suffering, by the way. Today's passage reminds us that no matter how 
difficult things become or how divisive the world is, God is executing a plan to ultimately unite and resolve all things in Christ. The plan of God, which began before the foundation of the world, is marching toward a glorious consummation to a day when heaven comes down to meet earth. A day when heaven and earth are are finally, finally one. A day when God's will is done on earth where we live as it is in heaven. A day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Today's passage reminds us of this truth. We'll be looking at Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 10, but to stay in the flow, I'll begin reading in verse 7. Brothers and sisters, friends of God, hear the word of our God. In him, that is in Christ, God's Son, the Beloved, we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Help us to not only see this truth, Lord, but help us to believe it deep within our souls, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It is quite simply impossible to overestimate the importance of Jesus Christ. The central truth on display in today's passage is that the Father's plan reveals that His Son is not merely the means of our redemption, but He is the main point of all things. The Father's plan reveals that his son is is not not merely the means of our blessings. He is, in fact, the main point of everything. So we'll look at this revealing of Jesus, the revelation of Christ that we see in verse 9, and then we'll look at the reunification plan through Christ in verse 10, and that should set us up to be able to revel in the glory of Jesus as we celebrate the sacrifice together that has made reconciliation with God possible. So flowing out of verse 8, as we discussed last week, God has generously and God has abundantly and God has lavishly poured out his grace, giving us wisdom and insight by making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose that he set forth in Christ. 
Now the reason this verse is is a revelation or a further revealing of Jesus Christ is because it tells us something within the context of the opening verses of Ephesians that adds that further adds to the glory of Jesus. Now we already know that because of and in Jesus we have been blessed by the Father. Again and again, just in Ephesians 1, we see that blessing after blessing comes to us in Christ. But if the only reason that we praise Jesus is because He's blessed us, there's a problem. And this verse provides the solution. The mystery or hidden secret that is now unveiled is that Jesus doesn't just facilitate all of our blessings. He is the focal point of everything that God is planning. So what is the plan? We need to know this because the truth of the matter is we can barely manage our own lives on a daily basis. We can make a train wreck of just about anything. And then sometimes it's very difficult for us, very difficult for us to lift our eyes beyond our own circumstances. So how much hope comes when we realize that all of everything that we experience ultimately fits into a cosmic-sized plan that God is accomplishing in the world, a plan that he began since before there was time. And he set forth that plan in motion. Now, let's ask the question again. What is the plan? If we think about the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, we've been getting clues throughout the Old Testament, beginning at least as early as Genesis 3.15. God tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So right out of the gate, the first piece of the story falls into place. We see there is a great tension that must be resolved. God will use someone that is the future offspring of the woman, to address the hostility or the opposition or the enmity that is now present in God's creation between heaven or the spiritual realm and between earth. That is this temporal realm in which we live. With each person or event or experience, another aspect of God's plan is fit together. From the flood account with Noah, to the Tower of Babel, from the calling of Abram, to the near sacrifice of Isaac. Story after story, person after person, another piece of the story is fit into place. From the story of the blessings of Jacob and Esau, to the events surrounding Joseph, who was sold into slavery and then later rose to power in Egypt. From Moses and the great deliverance through the Red Sea to all of the experiences in the wilderness from the conquering of Canaan to the time of the judges, from the institution of priests to the calling of prophets, 
from David and Solomon to the temple and exile, each person, each event, each experience fits another piece of the story into place. And it points forward to a great resolution when a more powerful deliverer will one day fulfill all of the promises of blessing from God to his people articulated throughout the Old Testament. The structure of the Old Testament is like like scaffolding. It's like scaffolding being put into place piece by piece to build or to replace whatever is actually behind it. The scaffolding provides the structure or the support to enable the true shape of the building to emerge. But the scaffolding, though crucial to the process, was always meant to be temporary. In fact, as the scaffolding is dismantled, again, piece by piece, the true beauty and fullness of what is behind it begins to be revealed. And so it is with the beauty of God's plan centered on Jesus Christ. You could make the argument that Ephesians 1, 9, and 10 are not just the climactic verses of this section that we've been in, in verses 3 through 14. It's not just the climactic theme of the book of Ephesians as a whole, you could make the argument that these verses reveal the fullness of the plan that God has been revealing since Genesis. Brothers and sisters, think about the purposefulness and the peace that comes to us from knowing that this is our Father's plan. So no matter what you're facing today, whether as you, as you sit here right now, it feels like an insurmountable financial issue. Or maybe you're facing a, a, very, a very serious medical diagnosis. Or maybe you're in conflict, working through a very difficult relationship. Maybe it feels like Sin is just winning. Winning in the world and winning the war that rages within our own hearts. If so, take heart, knowing that he who began a good work in the world and he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. This is the hope that we see all over this passage. Now, verse 10 says that this plan set forth in Christ will be completed in Christ. It is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Jesus. Things in heaven, that is in the spiritual realm, and things on earth. Now, this phrase, the, the fullness of time, is a, is a powerful biblical phrase that essentially means at the right time, according to God's plan. For example, in Galatians 4.4, we read, when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, it's similar here with kind of an added nuance to it. For, for the fullness of time. In other words, at the end of time, at a culmination point, God will unite or resolve all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, this is a fascinating word, this word, uh, unite that Paul uses here. It's extraordinarily pregnant with meaning, like third trimester pregnant with meaning. It basically means to sum up, or the main point is. It's, it's, it's a word that ties things together. Paul uses the exact same word in Romans 13.9 when he says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up or united in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, at the end of time, God is planning to unite or to sum up everything in Christ since he is the main point. Or we might say the end point to which everything in creation has been pointing. Now, just let this reality fill out your picture, your understanding of Jesus. Let it, let it fill out your love and your admiration, your worshipful awe of Jesus. The reality is that he is not merely the means by which we are blessed. As wonderful as that obviously is, he is the worshipful focal point to which everything in all creation is directed. In other words, the main point is that Jesus is the main point. Listen to the way the biblical writers describe him. The writer of Hebrews says, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So all things are created through Jesus Christ. Therefore, all things one day will be unified in Jesus Christ. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Or, Paul, in Colossians, as we reprise the call to worship, says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, for by Jesus 
all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. Think about that. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That is, every molecule in the galaxies is held together by the person and the power and the presence of this being. And he is the head of the body. He is the head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. When you just glance out at the world, Think about what a miracle it is that peace has come to the world through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. God is reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of the cross. So this necessarily includes you as a Christian if you have put your faith in Christ. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, Romans 3.24. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5. Do you know that as you sit here this morning? Does that matter to you as you sit here? This morning, as you consider this table and his sacrifice, does it dawn on you that you are no longer at war with God? Rather, you have become his friends, sons and daughters of this being that I am describing. You are no longer at war with God. You are no longer in bondage to sin or the prince of the power of this world because the prince of peace has rescued you from all other cosmic powers. The Holy Spirit now lives within you and you are an heir with Christ, God's Son, Forever. Where, where in your life, in particular, where in your spiritual life, do you need to more fully embrace and rest? I mean, fully rest in this truth. That would be a good thing to talk about this week in growth group. Beyond us as individual Christians, God has also provided unity for the church. 
In large measure, this is the immediate context of the central theme of Ephesians, that Jews and Gentiles, carrying that out to the 21st century, indeed all of us, are united. That is, we are now one in Christ. We, as the church, are to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace because there is one body and one Spirit, Ephesians 4, 3. Jesus himself is our peace, who has made both of us one and has broken down the wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. In other words, salvation is not by earning. It's not by meticulously obeying the law and the commandments expressed in ordinances. Rather, salvation is by faith in Christ as a gift for everyone. Nothing is more devastating for the church than a failure to be reconciled with one another. That's why communion is both a celebration of the sacrifice that made reconciliation with God possible, and it is an expression of our unity as one body, dependent upon faith in Christ, and a recognition that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. God's plan includes The fact that Jesus also brings unity to communities. What I mean is, whatever the type of community you might think of, from a poor community to a rich community, from black communities to white communities, from immigrant communities to nationalistic ones, from local communities to the global community, from from family conflicts to wars between nations, The command of Jesus to his people is to enter in. To enter into the mess, to enter into the chaos, to enter into the conflict with the reconciling hope of the unifying power of the gospel that came to us through this sacrifice by the blood of Jesus in Calvary's cross. Listen to the way Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5. From now on, Therefore, we regard no one, absolutely no one according to the flesh. Amazing statement. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, Paul says, if anyone, anyone is in Christ, man, woman, child, Jew, Gentile, Repentant, devil-worshipping, pagan. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us 
to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal to others through us. We implore you, we implore you on behalf, of, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So if you know as you sit here this moment, you are not reconciled to God. I am asking you, I'm imploring you to be reconciled to God at this moment by by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, his son, as the only reason that you can be counted righteous and approved in his sight But that can happen for you at this moment. And it doesn't matter who you are or what you have done. God is reconciling the world to himself through Christ. But Notice here at the end of this verse, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Notice that the context here of the equalizing power of the cross is the basis for sharing the gospel with all people. If you are a recipient of grace, from whom are you going to withhold the gospel message? That's insane. It's the basis for sharing the gospel with all people so that so that people from every tongue and tribe and nation, that some from every community, we might say, no matter who they are, so that they might be reconciled to God. And finally, God's plan includes unity or resolution or summing up on a cosmic level, spiritual scale. So think back to the enmity from Genesis 3 that we talked about earlier. While unity between good and evil is clearly not the ultimate goal, the problem cries out for a final and ultimate resolution. That resolution is found in Jesus Christ. As as Paul brings chapter 1 to a close, he will say, God worked his immeasurably great power in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, and authority, and power, and dominion. All references to cosmic spiritual beings. Uh, Jesus is above them all. And above 
Every name that is named not only in this age, but in the age to come. That is as ultimate as it gets. Colossians 2, 14 and 15 says that when God nailed our record of debt to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ on Calvary's cross. Jesus is bringing the powers to a final destination. In whatever way God chooses to bring final resolution to the enmity between good and evil on a cosmic spiritual level, we know, and this is amazing, we know that we play a part in that plan. Do you know that God is doing more in you and through you on a daily basis than you could possibly imagine. Every, every act of obedience, every sacrifice, every spirit-dependent, loving word, designed to encourage. Jesus says every cup of cold water given in his name is not only producing an effect here on earth, it is testifying to spiritual beings that God reigns supreme over his church and that we value obeying him over anything else in the world. This is exactly what Ephesians 3, 9 through 11 says. Listen to these words. The plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, is being brought to light so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. In other words, when you do something in obedience to God through the power of the Spirit, it testifies to demons that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's a witness to the spiritual powers that God is sovereign and that He reigns. Because if we saw one of these beings, evil as they may be, we would probably either faint or be tempted to worship them for their greatness. And God says, look, look at these poor miserable people who are being obedient to me and you are not. Let that be a rebuke to you. There is more going on in the spiritual realm than we, than we have eyes to see. But we can be fully confident because we are in Christ. Beloved, we will, we will overcome the world. We will overcome our own flesh. We will overcome the devil himself. 
by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Revelation 12, 11. Therefore, as we prepare to revel in Christ, consider that each aspect of what I've been describing for the Christian, for the church, for communities, and at the cosmic level, every single one of those is accomplished, God's plan is accomplished through the cross. Therefore, we're celebrating this sacrifice 2,000 years after it happened. As, As big, as massive, as great as the story is, from an eternity to eternity, from Genesis to Revelation, it's all focused in on one singular point in history. Everything hinges on the cross and the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. Therefore, God is able to reconcile all things in Jesus. But this morning we worship Jesus not not merely because he is the means of our redemption. We worship Jesus because he is the main point of everything. Glory be to the lamb who was slain forever and ever and ever. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare to celebrate the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf, I pray that you would overwhelm us with a sense of the magnitude of what Jesus has done for us. And I pray that that would instill confidence in us that you will finish what you started. And, and I, pray, I pray for us right now that as your spirit begins to move among us as we prepare our hearts for communion, I pray that sin to us would seem insane. Because you have been at work and are at work reconciling all things to yourself to oppose you in that work seems like the most foolish thing imaginable. So would you bring conviction to us for the areas of life where that's sadly true. And I pray that you would cause joy to well up in our hearts as we consider the fullness and the effectiveness of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf and on behalf of the world. And I pray that that would lead us to sing for joy and to come to this table in freedom and in celebration. So to that end, Spirit, would you minister to us now in whatever way you desire, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.